We're going to read from God's word, Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. So turn in your Bibles as you have them available. Acts chapter 16, 17 rather, 16 through 34. I invite you to stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of the heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being uh, that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. Those are the memorable words of Dorothy when she is, uh, according to to the fictional story, right? Uh, The Wizard of Oz, transported by a tornado to the strange land of Oz where people are very different. Uh, It's a world like she's never seen. And so she says, we're not in Kansas anymore. And, And of course, she's absolutely right in that story. I wonder if Paul thought that 
as he walked through the city of Athens. When Paul really and truly, he, he actually, his, his feet actually touched the soil of Athens and he walked through that great city uh, that had become powerful and, and really a, a powerful of the, of the mind, a, a, a powerhouse of the mind and the intellect in the Greek world. I wonder if Paul walked through and his first thought was, oh boy, I'm sure not in Jerusalem anymore. This place is strange. And what's strange about it is, first of all, it's full of idols. It's full of false gods that people are actually worshiping. And second, it's, it's full of strange people with strange beliefs. They do not worship the one true God. In fact, they worship many gods. And then it introduces the Epicureans and the Stoics who had very different views. The Epicureans were polytheists. They believed in many different gods, but they tended to believe that those gods were far off and and out um, out of touch from their daily lives. And what they were left to do was, was uh, enjoy pleasure, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And then you had the Stoics who uh, believed not in many gods, but that uh, God was actually kind of um, everything and, and, and embedded in everything. And that when we talk about God, we're really talking about a world spirit um, that everyone kind of participates in. And, and the, the chief goal of man is just to kind of stay strong and uh, to endure suffering and to be bold and powerful in the face of a difficult life. And so Paul is just encountering all these different realities, pagan culture, uh, the market, uh, marketplace street view of, of, of many gods, and then the, the highly philosophical view of the Epicureans and the Stoics. And he just, I'm, I wonder if he just thought, where am I? What is this place? Why do they, these people, how have they strayed so far from the God of the scriptures? How about us? How about us when we walk through the streets of Dayton, when we visit New York City, when we travel around this country? Do you ever feel, oh boy, this place is strange and getting stranger. You know, only 6% of Americans embrace a Christian worldview today. That's what polls have shown. And that definition of a, of a Christian worldview is pretty generous even. Um, only 6%. According to the, the George Barna um, professional poll that was done. And then it's no surprise that over 50% of Americans in that same poll affirmed that they believe Sodom and Gomorrah were a married couple. Less than a third of Americans know at least five of the Ten Commandments. 12% of Americans in the poll said that they believe that Joan of Arc is Noah, Noah's um, wife. So you, you hear these things and you say, wow, people don't really know the Bible anymore. It's true. Bible knowledge is really sliding, in a, in, not only in, in, in American churches, but in, especially in the country as a whole. And you'll hear over and over again as you dive into these things, we're following the trail of Europe, right? Leaving behind uh, a, a Christian worldview and on to something, whatever it is, to substitute in its place. And so we're seeing our country get closer and closer to something that looks like Athens, 
Not there yet, right? People will still talk, at least on a surface level, of believing in God. But you, you can't know anywhere. You can't know for sure that when you say uh, the name God, that someone is going to have the same concept of one God who made everything. And who came to save the world through, uh, in the person and work of Christ Jesus. You can't know that for sure. We're not in Kansas anymore. So what do we do about that? Well, when Paul was confronted with the reality of a world, of a strange world that knew very little about the God of the Bible, it disheartened him, it it frustrated him, it, it outraged him. He wanted these people to know that the living and the true God. But you know what it also did? It mobilized Paul. He didn't flee. He didn't give up. He didn't see uh, the, the ignorance of the world around him as this impenetrable wall. Instead, he said, I know what to do. I'm going to make the living and the true God known. I'm going to proclaim him. And there's a way to do that. This isn't a lost cause. There is a way to proclaim God to a culture that is increasingly rejecting him. And that's important for us to know today. We, last week, we considered the outrage that we ought to have in the face of idols. This week, we really need to consider the substance of Paul's sermon and say, what does this sermon model for us about how we are to enter into a world that needs to hear about the God of the Bible? How does it teach us to do this? What do, what do we do? What do we say? And how does it challenge us in our hearts along the way? Well, let's look at this sermon. The sermon follows the trail of Paul's um, preaching. And really what it teaches us to do uh, as it models uh, this approach in Paul is first we must find our starting point. Then we must tell of a great God and we, we, we must proclaim a risen Lord. We must find our starting point. We must tell of a great God. We must proclaim a risen Lord. Well, think of Paul as he, he, he's given this grand invitation to speak to the Areopagus. And what this was, it was like the philosophical, um, the, the greatest philosophical school of the ancient world. This is where all the ideas were churning. This is where people uh, were, were, were coming up with, with, with the newest and cutting edge thoughts uh, about, about reality. And Paul... A thoroughgoing Christian is invited to speak. I wonder, you know, what, what would you say if you were in Paul's shoes? Where would you start? This isn't the only time this has happened. In fact, recently I noticed that uh, the famous philosopher John Lennox was invited to speak um, uh, before a, a, a philosophical um, uh, university. I believe it was Cambridge. He, he got to speak to them and, and explain why he was a Christian. What do you say to a people who have rejected the God of the Bible? What text do you start with? And there are many different entry points, but I want you to notice what Paul does. He finds his starting point with one of their texts. Because even if he were to start with Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God, they're going to be thinking, okay, one God amongst many. And Paul says, actually, I'm going to correct that, but let's start with one of your own texts. 
Let's meet. Let, let, let's find a place uh, where I can meet you on your level. And isn't that is a great encouragement for us today. That is a model. We need to meet an unbelieving world on its level, not adopting its philosophies, but saying, where are you? What do you believe? I'm going to start there. If you believe in many gods, let's start with understanding who God is. Well, notice this text he chooses. It's an inscription on one of their idolatrous statues, and and it goes like this. It's it's an inscription that that praises an unknown God. It says, this idol, this statue was set up to honor the unknown God. Now, we know something of how this ended up here. It ended up about 600 years before Paul even started to preach in Athens. And it ended up there because um, there was a plague that broke out in Athens and people were dying. And what happened is uh, one of the leaders of the city said, we must have offended some, one of our gods. And so let's take uh, about 100 sheep. Let's let them loose in the city. And wherever they lie down, we're going to sacrifice that sheep to that god of the temple that it's closest to. And so if, if uh, a sheep laid down near the temple of Zeus and, and they look, they say, well, let's sacrifice that one to Zeus. Maybe it's Zeus that's offended. If, if, if a sheep laid down close to the temple of Aphrodite, let's sacrifice it to Aphrodite. She must be the goddess that's offended. But then there were some sheep that strayed so far that they laid down and it was apparent that they were close to no statue, no temple in Athens. And so they said, well, in case there's some God we're forgetting, we'll sacrifice that sheep to an unknown God. And Paul sees that and he says, here we go. They've already shown it to me. They've shown to me that for all of their, uh, their proud academia, for all of their assurance and that, they have, uh, that they know the gods that exist, for all of their pride and their 30,000 idols, they've admitted in their own words that there's something that they do not know and that there could be a God out there. In fact, that they believe there is one to whom honor and praise is due, and they do not know him. So Paul says, there's my starting point, the altar to the unknown God. And notice what Paul does here. He doesn't enter in and argue for God's existence. He doesn't come in and say, I want to give you three or four arguments for why the God of the Bible is the real God and he exists. Instead, Paul enters in and he says, you've already shown me in your own worldview that you know that God exists, that you know that there is a true God who looms above and beyond the idols that you put in this city. And isn't that exactly what Paul affirms as well in Romans chapter one? He says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, but gave themselves up to worship of all sorts of idols. And what does Paul say? He said, it's evident to every single person that exists in light of them being created in God's image, that to be self-conscious is to be God-conscious. To exist, to know yourself, is intrinsically to know God and to know that there's a God exist who deserves praise, who is not a creature, but a creator. Paul says that every single person that exists knows deep down in their heart, somewhere buried in the trenches of their mind and in their heart that God exists. And that's what he's appealing to. That's what he's banking on when he says, I saw the altar to an unknown God. You know him. 
You know, trying to suppress our knowledge of God is like trying to push a, a beach ball under the water in a pool. You ever tried to do that? You try to get on top of it and press a beach ball down, but it's inflated, so it keeps popping up, and, and you think you've got it down, and it pops out on, on, on your left side, and you keep it down, and it pops up on your right side. Keeping, trying to suppress the knowledge of God that he's put in our hearts is like trying to, uh, to shove something down and out of the picture that just keeps popping up. And so these Athenians, for all their denial of the true God of the Bible and for all the idols they have, they cannot but, but, but betray the fact that they believe in the unknown God. And he keeps popping up into their, uh, their imaginations and their lives and their worldview and into their philosophical discussions. Where, where does that happen today? What are the altars to the unknown God in our world? There are many of them. Let me just give you two quick examples. You know, I was one time talking to a biology professor who was utterly convinced of evolution and to the point where he said, you know, there is no God. We are the product of time and chance and material mechanisms. And uh, somehow singular molecule came into existence and that molecule expanded and evolved and evolved and evolved. So now we have complex bags of chemicals that are walking around and we can look at them and, and call them human beings. But what they are is they are highly evolved bags of chemicals. He said this to me. And yet I was, I was also able to point out to him, then why do you go home? And you love your wife and you hug her and you kiss her and you treat her like anything but a bag of walking chemicals. Why do you see that she has dignity? Why do you believe that she has honor? You're a good husband. You're a good father. But that doesn't seem to fit with your worldview. I'll give you another example. A few years ago, I was reading um, a paper that was written by a cultural anthropologist. And she, she was uh, this accomplished studier of other um, uh, cultures. Cultures very unlike ours here. And... Uh, she liked to study them because really she believed deep in her heart uh, that cultures were morality was relative, right? One culture can choose its own set of beliefs and another culture can choose its own set of beliefs. And you can never really say that one is right and the other is wrong. And she just she thought it was really interesting how one culture could kind of come to its own conclusions. And yet she's studying certain cultures and she's deeply bothered by how men are treating women in those cultures. And she wants to object to it. She wants to say it's wrong. In fact, she does. She comes out in her article and says, in, in the end, this is wrong. The way that they are treating women in, this, in these cultures is wrong. And yet she admits she doesn't have any moral basis for that. She doesn't have anything to stand upon when she says that. But she can't but bring herself to say it. What's happening? It is her knowledge of God, her knowledge that she has made in God's world, and it's popping up and it's showing itself. And this is true of any worldview, any person that you meet. They are believing, if they are believing a lie, if they are believing anything other than that they are created uh, by God and in his world, then they cannot sustain that lie for long. And, and, and here and there, you're going to see inconsistencies start to pop up. 
And that's our starting point. We say, I see your altar to an unknown God. Let me tell you who that God is. Let me tell you of the God who makes sense of justice. Let me tell you of the God who, who has moral order. Let me tell you of a God uh, whose world, in whose world you can rationally investigate things. Let me tell you about the God of the Bible. And friends, I just want to say this to encourage you. I think it's here to encourage you that when you talk to people of very different religions, when you're starting to feel like you're not in Kansas anymore, you always have a starting point, something in common, and it's this. You both are made in the image of the triune God. And that they cannot su- successfully suppress their knowledge of God. That's our starting point. Well, what is this God like? We find our starting point in the God of the scriptures and knowledge of him. But what is he like? And, and well, we, we must tell our culture of a great God. Not a small God of our imagination, but a God who, who pushes outside what we would ever come up with or conceive. That's what Paul does here, isn't it? He, he says, people of Athens, this unknown God, this God that you recognize exists, He's not like your false idols. You can't fit him into a temple made by human hands. And I wonder if that point, Paul turned around and pointed to the Parthenon that was looming over them. You can't fit him in a temple. This God is bigger than your temple. This God is bigger than your imagination. Isn't that the problem with all man-made religion? It makes God in man's image. It tries to fit in fashion a God who is controllable by us and who makes sense to us. That's what the Greek gods are like. You ever ever read the the dramas of the Greek gods? They're really adventurous and interesting, but really you've got gods there that are nothing more than um, impressive humans. And they have fits of anger and rage and they can be defeated. And um, Achilles has his uh, Achilles heel. And you've got, you know, all these, um, these great difficulties that beset the gods in Greece. Isn't it true in our culture as well and in our world that we are so prone, friends, to fit in fashion a God who is comfortable and who suits our interests? There's, there's a fancy term for this. You ready for it? It's called moral therapeutic deism. In other words, a God who exists and he has some sort of morality, but really he's out of the picture and uninvolved in our lives unless we're really in a bad spot and want someone to pray to and need, and need to have some sort of comfort. That's not a God of the Bible. That's a God of our imaginations that we drummed up. That's a God that we concocted. He's more like the Greek gods than the God of the Bible. Because look at what's true of the God of the Bible. He's a God that we cannot possibly conceive. And that's why he's worthy of worship. Look at what Paul says. He starts to build the building blocks of a biblical worldview. What are the building blocks of a biblical worldview? Creation. That's what Paul says in Acts 17. He says, this God made the world and everything in it. And so right away, this major building block that he starts with, what is it? You've got the creatures and you've got the creator. 
And those are two massively different categories that you do not cross. Creature and creator. And the creator is worthy of worship. Amen? Something more about this creator. He doesn't just stay aloof out of our business. He is responsible for everything. Uh, Let me put it this way. He ordained it. That's a better way to put it. He ordained everything that comes to place. Paul says it here in in, uh, verse uh, 26. He says that this God determines allotted periods in the boundaries of man's dwelling place. That word determined there. That word determined is the word for sovereignly ordaining all things. In other words, there's not a single maverick molecule in the universe that would evade God's ordination, his, his sovereign control. This isn't some local deity. This is a God who said, the Greeks are going to go here. The Jews are going to go here. The Romans are going to go here. Here's how this all is going to transpire and it's all under my control. Now that's not a God that we would drum up if we were concocting a God of our own imagination. There's more though. This is a God who created all things. He's the, cre- he's the, uh, he's the creator he ordained all things. It's all under his sovereign control. But friends, what this, this doesn't mean is that he is so high and lofty that he is apart from us. In fact, what does Paul do? He pivots and says, this is a God who is intimately related to your lives. Your very breath comes from him. Take a breath. God sustained that breath. God empowered that breath. That's how close and near he is to you. That the very basic things you do, brushing your teeth, uh, moving your arms, uh, breathing, your your very breath of life comes from him. And he's so intricately connected that we would say that the God who is transcendent is also imminent. He's also close to us. So much so that we are like his children. We are his offspring. And you notice what Paul does. He says, you guys know this because guess what? One time you were, you were talking about uh, deity and one of, your, one of your poets said that we are God's offspring. That's right. We were in his image. We're like his children. We are like children who cannot survive, cannot eat, cannot drink unless mom and dad provide. That's our relationship with God. One theologian said it this way. In order to slap God in the face, we have to be sitting on his lap. We have to be a child sitting. You ever seen that? A child that in order to slap his mom or dad in the face has to get up on their lap. In order to insult God, to deny him, We have to know him. We have to depend upon him for our very breath of life. How do you think we came into existence? It was God. And that's what makes sin so heinous, so horrible. Because sin isn't just some mistake. It's an active rejecting of the God of the Bible. The very God that gives you breath. It's saying... I'm not going to thank you for my life. I'm not going to thank you for your gifts. 
I want life on my own terms. I want to live my own way. I want gods that will make me happy, not challenge my lifestyle. These are the basics of a biblical worldview. And there's one more building block here. It's the building block of redemption. Notice it's it's just barely on the surface of this text. But it says the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. In other words, this God, this God who is greater than our imagination, you'd like for him to overlook sin, but he's not going to. He is coming as righteous judge. And there is a day in which he will bring us to account for sitting on his lap and slapping him in the face. How do you think humanity is going to fare? Not well. Judgment. Condemnation. But the hope of repentance, the hope that we can turn away from sin, away from idolatry, and say, God, I've fashioned a God of my own making. I didn't want you, but Lord, I was wrong. Give me hope in Jesus. That's the gospel. And that's what Paul really brings the Athenians to at this point. He starts proclaiming Christ as the risen Lord. So we find our starting point. We tell of a great God and we proclaim a risen Lord. See how he just brings the resurrection up here and says, do you want to know how all of this is true? Do you want to know the proof for all this? The very man who is God's solution to all this, the very man who is righteous judge. He died and God rose him from the, from the dead. Now, this is a hard teaching for the Athenians. It's hard for us today, but it was very hard for them because they did not believe in resurrection at all. They totally rejected it. For reasons we won't get, get into. Your body died, your body's, your body's gone. doesn't hold back. Just because a teaching's hard doesn't mean he shirks back. He actually pushes it at this point and says, you need to hear this because it's true and it's for your good. And so he proclaims that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Now at this point, the sermon suddenly stops. And you're saying, where's all the talk about faith in Christ? Where's, where are the things that Paul loves to talk about? And, and, and at this point, friends, we're given indication in this text that the sermon stops because Paul is interrupted. Why is he interrupted? Because resurrection struck a nerve. Now, let me tell you something. Whenever you start talking about a risen and reigning Lord, you have removed the conversation from this theoretical, hypothetical mold. And you are pressing people to make a decision. You know, the Athenians love to talk about new ideas as long as they're all abstract and hypothetical. Oh, that's an interesting life philosophy. Oh, hmm. Well, I, I don't like that one. I like this one better. You see, their ideas are like a marketplace. Pick and choose what worldview you want. But the resurrection says you can't pick and choose. God really did, in real history, raise Christ Jesus from the dead. So it's not a matter of a marketplace of ideas. There's one true religion. It's, it's the religion of the Bible. And you must embrace it or face the judge. If Christ really rose from the dead, actually,
actually rose from the dead, then Christianity isn't just another option in the marketplace of worldviews. It's the truth you must embrace. And friends, let me proclaim this boldly. Christ is risen. He rose from the dead and demands from each one of us a decision. Now, notice finally here, at the end of all this, what happened. Sermon ends. Some people say, I'm done with you. Other people say, hmm, maybe we'll hear him again sometime. And then a very small group says, we believe. Now, you listen to some commentators and they'll talk like this was a massive failure. Like Paul was just learning the ropes. He's figuring out. And, and later, later he really figured out how to preach with power and get people to believe. That's not true. What Paul did here was proclaim the gospel. And what God did was he moved people, opened their hearts to believe the gospel. Dionysius and Damaris, a man or woman, give their lives to Christ. This is amazing. And guess what God does? He takes that man and that woman. And within 250 years, guess what becomes the dominant worldview of Greece? Biblical Christianity. It sweeps over Greece because the risen Lord will not have his name besmirched, but he will have people to lay a hold of him by faith. Friends, we are called to not shirk back from the obstacles of, of the strange world we live in, but to go all in, to find a starting point, to work hard to find that, to tell of a great God, to proclaim a risen Lord. Do you believe that risen Lord? If so, then we must proclaim him. We must make God known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful model for us to follow. Paul in Athens speaking to this strange world, but with a conviction that it is not so strange after all, for it is your world. And every human being belongs to you. May we have that kind of confidence and may we have that kind of conviction even when we talk to people. May we not shirk back from saying bold things about the resurrection, pointing people to Jesus, talking about the realities of sin and judgment. But Lord, give us wisdom how to enter into, into those conversations and to proclaim you as the true God to make you known. We pray, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.